0: Metallica, here they come, the kings of metal.
1: So fucking what? Hey everyone, this is Tom Kui here
0: from Alpha Metallica, and you're listening to Metal Up Your Podcast.
1: Welcome to the Middle of Your Podcast. I'm Ethan Luck. And I'm Clint Wells. This is episode 134, and it's been a while, but we're going to jump into a top 10 on this episode. Oh, hang on a second, everybody. This is us from the future, by the way. Welcome to the future. It's nice I here. It's not too bad, yeah. It's okay. It's a little yeah. saucy, but it's fine. Trump is in his seventh term. <laughs>
2: <laughs> the, we're in the Trump dynasty. <laughs> Listen, here's what happened, folks. So we'd plan on doing our top 10 riffs episode. Right. We had it all planned out. We put the clips in and everything. But what happened is, we started talking about this James Hetfield deep dive into the Justice record, and that was such an interesting episode, and it took up so much time that we we decided to make that the episode. So you're going to have to ignore any (laughs) allusions (laughs) to- Any any, any top 10 references, just ignore. We're not going to do that episode. It'll Uh, it'll,
1: it'll, it'll happen. We're going to do it in the future here. Maybe it'll be our next episode uh, once we come back in town.
2: And we're also, we kind of bypassed the housekeeping, and the because this episode just got so dense, it's late here on a Sunday night. Um, I did want to say thank you to Drew Paranaut and Dan Stewart for being new patrons. Thank you. We want to thank them. Yes, 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 yes. But we were going to bypass the normal housekeeping and just launch us right into the episode. Yeah, so
1: I think uh, we can agree that um, what intended on being like this shorter segment about this headfield interview turned into something that we didn't expect. Mm-hmm. I mean, we intended on doing the top 10 and having this thing be like maybe a 30-minute segment. And it turned out to be an hour and a half of us talking about this interview, so we're very happy with it, and it it turned out great.
2: Yeah. So anyways, hang in there with us, and uh, ignore any continuity issues. (laughs) (laughs) What are you talking about? I want to see you guys later. Bye. Bye. We're getting geared up for our vacations coming up. Mm. Konichiwa, by the way. <clears throat> Thank you. Oh, have got to And you—you uh, you got a new gig, drum taking for Brandy Carlisle, yeah. which Congrats. That's Thanks. awesome. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, uh, you know, we've, you know, I've talked about this a bunch, but you know, Nashville sometimes is a is a tough town to find a playing gig, mm-hmm. and I've been trying. You know, you, you've been there. And a lot of us have been there, but, yeah, I uh, I know that Need to Breathe is picking up again next year when they do a new record and stuff. So I thought, well, maybe I'll just go out and try to get a teching gig again. And uh, a friend of mine uh, is the production manager for Brandy Carlisle. If you haven't heard her, by the way, her music's incredible, and she, I just got to see her perform for the first time yesterday at this festival while I was teching, and my God,
2: it's a great show. So I'll be out, her, out with her uh, all fall, pretty much, other than when I'm on vacation. Yeah, I've just, through my various tourings, have, have crossed paths with her camp and done yeah. festivals and shows with Brandy and hung out with them. Um, <clears throat> Matthew Mayfield and I did The Rock Boat one year, and she was headlining it with Need to Breathe, actually. Oh, very cool. I'll
1: be doing The Rock Boat in January.
2: Yeah, those are fun. My first ever cruise. I've never been on one. Well, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I've heard. Yeah, hopefully we, we can didn't come. We didn't go to bed until 8 a.m. almost every day. Oh, my. It was pretty wild. <laughs> it was pretty wild. Uh, if you're joining us for the first time, we're an all Metallica podcast, of course. Ethan and we're I- We're not a Brandy Carlisle podcast? Not yet. Okay. Ethan and I, uh, we carve out time out of our busy touring schedules to talk about our favorite metal band, Metallica. I was thinking about it today. I love Metallica as much as I've ever loved them. I know. It's crazy. Even rolling into three years of this podcast. Right. I don't necessarily feel burnt out. I love watching all the So What interviews today and doing all the research for this episode, yeah. thinking about what my top 10 favorite riffs are, which, by the way, I think I have some surprises. I think I've got a couple. Some, How did you go about whittling down your list? Did you did you appeal to what's been your favorite, kind of your whole fandom, or are you honing mm-hmm. in on stuff you're excited about now?
1: Kind of both. What I My course of action was this. I opened up iTunes, got all my Metallica records in there, and I just kind of went into it. It was r- literally right after we were texting about what to do the episode on. I'm like, I'm gonna come in with come in with a fresh head, real quick, and I just started going record by record and just like typing out my favorite riffs from each record, and then whittling it down from there. And some of them were hard to cut. Um, mm-hmm. I will say this as a little hint: I, there's one record that no riffs made it. Yeah, actually, there's a couple. But, yeah, me too. But, but, but one one that may, may surprise you. Me too. I so, bet it's
2: the same one. Probably. Lulu? <clears throat> um, well, it's tempting, too, when we do these top 10 lists. Like, we've done a lot of top 10s our top 10 uh, deep cuts, our top covers. 10 favorite songs, our top 10 covers, our top 10 solos, or whatever. It's tempting. The hard thing, and I think as our listeners start to think about what theirs might be, which, by the way, uh, metal up your podcast show at com. Send us your top 10s also. Yeah. Uh, after we burn this episode down, because I'm interested in what people have to say. Yeah. Um,
1: I mean, this, this could, uh, span such a large spectrum because Mm -hmm. I mean, you take one song off a master of puppets and there's, you know, 10 great riffs just in one song. Right. So it's a, it's a tough
2: thing to whittle down, I think. But the, but the, the tension there is like your favorite versus the best. Exactly. Because it, it, because you know, first of all, I'll go ahead and do this spoiler. Um, inner Sandman's not on my list. Right. And that's, Probably the greatest Metallica riff. It's Yeah. In terms of how far it's reached, what it did for the band, how recognizable it is, mm-hmm. we do Inner Sandman in the country show that I do. And people go nuts, probably. And the guy I play for has a lot of big, 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 big hits. And the Inner Sandman moment is <laughs> right. almost the biggest moment of the show.
1: I feel like you could play in almost any genre of music. And if you started playing that, even just the opening,
2: immediately most of the crowd would know it. It's almost like... a when Carl Sagan they you know they they sent uh they sent a record out into space yeah to try to see if it ever you know interfaces with any extraterrestrial life right what do we want to send them and they sent like you know mozart or something or they're beaming mozart into space would you send the black album or or like <laughs> richard dawkins talks about how what's the one thing that you could communicate with other life and he his opinion is darwinian evolution because any other life in the universe will have come to fruition by the same Darwinian evolution. Right. And I feel like inner Sandman riff is like, that's what we could talk to aliens it's about. It's part of our evolution you know as, what I mean? as beings. But, and yet it didn't make my list they're like we are here to kill you uh one second
1: uh for a second uh, can i hit play on this record real please first?
2: take me to the producer
1: of the black album we are going to kill you right now with our zappers <laughs> zappers zappers and then you hit you know hit the old, put the needle down right. the record and all of a sudden the aliens start moshing we want peace yeah. we were just kidding we'll put our zappers away say your prayers little ones <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, Do we need to write an alien jingle now? Probably
2: Yeah Well, okay, so before we get into that Which I'm, I can't wait I, As usual when we do these lists Ethan and I do not know what our top tens are Correct So we're going to all just find this out together I'm sure it's going to inspire a lot of fun Metallica conversation mm-hmm. We've got a couple of news bits to hit Little tidbits Now, <clears throat> for those of us who may not be going to the S&M 2 gigs On September 6th and September 8th The good news is they are going to be showing it for one night only in over 3,000 movie theaters uh, on October 9th. Is that correct here? Yeah, October 9th. So you can go to Metallica.com and get tickets for that. Uh, 3,000 theaters is a lot. That's a a, a few. It's a wide release. So the chances are some theater near you uh, will be showing it. And so a great night for you to either get connected with a local chapter, which I'm sure all of our friends and all these local chapters are going to be organizing a Metallica night. Uh, right. Get involved. Go see it. Go take a buddy. Take your spouse. Take yeah. your kids. Um, I know you and I will probably I'm be gonna going I'm going to try. I, I actually need actually
1: look at my schedule. I didn't even think about it It's that. on a Wednesday. Yeah.
2: Well, we do have some midweek shows, so we'll see. So, I hope I can go to these. So that's the first thing. So anyway, p- put you know bookmark that and, and, and don't don't delay on that. Get, get that locked in. It's going to be a fun night. Uh, the next thing is going on. Have you seen this? The ABCs of Metallica. The kids' book. They're putting out a book. Yeah, It uh, comes out November twenty-six. All the proceeds of the book going to the All Within My Hands Foundation, which is awesome, amazing. Uh, to quote unquote, continue Metallica's support of workforce education and the fight against hunger.
1: I think this is awesome. I'm sure they'll get a lot of flack for it from maybe some some old school fans. That will, Sell out? You're doing fucking uh, children's book. Blah blah blah. I think it's great. They're all parents. They all have kids. Maybe not as young that would read this book anymore. Mm-hmm. But it's rad. I think it's awesome. You know, I was just telling you briefly uh, before we started this that uh, Josh, who plays Keys in Need to Breathe, Mm -hmm. um, he does like it's kids' music, but he he calls it uh, like family music. Like it's for the whole family kind of thing. But very similar in that. And like, you know, you don't often expect certain artists to be dabbling in that genre. You know, there's stuff like Yo Gabba Gabba and whatever that kids are into and stuff. But it's pretty cool that Metallica is, you know, dipping their foot in that water.
2: Well, yeah, and I see it as just a continuation of them doing whatever they want to do. You're going to buy that book for your daughter, aren't you? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Even though she knows her ABCs already. Well, of course I am, because it's. it's I'm going to buy that for myself. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to buy it for the daughter inside of you, (laughs) whoever, wherever, and whoever she (laughs) is. The
1: child. Yeah, her name is Ingrid, and uh, Ingrid. That's the first name that came to my mind.
2: Wow. If you have any listeners name Ingrid, this is Your alter you. ego. <laughs> well, so anyway, all right, so put that on your radars, too. And uh, here's a little description of the book that was from Metallica.com. Including rhymes and illustrations, the ABCs of Metallica looks back at the history of the band from A to Z. Each letter of the alphabet highlights a moment along our journey from garage days to master of puppets to fun facts about the band. The book's co-authored by Howie Abrams, who did The Merciless Book of Metal Lists Hip Hop Alphabet, and with illustrations by Michael Caves McLear who participated in Metallica's Obey Your Master Exhibit in 2012. So it's like when they make whiskey or when they make beer, you right. know, they partner with some of the best. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be up to the normal standards we've come to love and enjoy from our favorite band.
1: Right. I feel like at this point they've dabbled in so many cool things. They just need to open up like stores and in, in like around the country like in malls or something like we can go there and get their records on vinyl cd cassette whatever you can get the, the van shoes you can mm-hmm. get the skateboard deck the whiskey the children's book the the watches the watches yeah metallica outfitters <laughs> is that what it would be called coming summer 2021 metallica inc
2: well, anyway, yeah, I mean, it's cool. If people think sell cool. sellout stuff, all I need, I just point you to the fact that it's all being donated to f- charity. So I feel like
1: at this point, you can, can go fuck yourself. I feel like in 2019, if you're still one of those people going, like, they sold out. Uh, it's, it's tired. I know. It's tired. Grow up. Get out of here. Well, And if you're one of those people that think that, and you didn't get off the ride during the Black Album or Load and Reload, you're clearly still around paying attention, mm-hmm. so I don't know what to tell you
2: anymore. Yeah. Just enjoy the ride or, or... I've prepared a statement for them. What is it? Eat My Shorts.
1: (laughs) Eat My Shorts.
2: (laughs) Now, the next bit of news, and we're going to kind of hover in this for a second, because I found this very, very interesting. Pleases, Clint. So, Stefan Shiraz, who, you know, does the So What stuff, he does a lot of stuff for the band. um, Right. You know he does. He, he edits the So What magazine. He conducts a lot of roundtable type interviews. He catches up with the band. And you know what's cool about him is he asks a lot of questions that like you and I would ask the boys. Should they ever come on the show? Right. Not it, just normal like interview questions. No. Like,
1: so what happened um, with Cliff?
2: And I think also because he's close with them. I mean, he's been a part of the Metallica camp since the Carlson days. Yeah. He's been around almost since the very beginning. That's amazing. And because of that closeness. He asks questions that really get inside and then he pushes back on them. Yeah. He's always really respectful, of course. Sure. But you can tell they share a camaraderie that I think makes these kinds of interviews more interesting than a typical journalist.
1: Right. Yeah. Well and like you said, with that history that he has with the band, it makes it a lot, you know, easier and maybe more comfortable for him to kind of push a little bit. He knows he knows what buttons not to push with James or whoever. Sure. So he, but he, but he feels comfortable to dig a little deeper than maybe your average journalist from, you know, whatever magazine. And they're comfortable with him. Yeah,
2: exactly. So there's a lot of trust and respect that goes both ways. Yeah. So when he does push a little bit, I think he's getting good shit out of them. Yep. And again, I think this is just an extension of what they're willing to, um, the kind of content they're willing to offer their fans. It's Mm -hmm. a very transparent vibe. Right. So I guess what happened, I didn't really read this whole thing, but I guess what happened is, Because they've been busy touring and stuff, they kind of have a backlog of so what type uh, behind the scenes stuff. So it's like Rob talking about basses. Um, It's the whole band talking about the Chris Cornell stuff, which is really interesting. Like why they chose head injury, what it was like at the forum gig, James being nervous about it, what they thought of the other artists who played, what they think about Chris's career. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a ten-minute clip that's like gold for me. Yeah, totally I haven't
1: watched that one yet. Yeah. Which,
2: by the way, we just did an Instagram live, which was really fun. But <laughs> me and you and Paul Moak uh, Monday night. So as of this episode is dropping. Yeah, tonight, are basically. doing a grunge night at the basement at east the in, basement east in East Nashville. Yeah, where I guess there's an Allison Chains tribute band. Yeah, headlining it. They're they're kind of organizing the whole thing. But what they did is they tapped a bunch of local Nashville musicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of us and all of us, I, I think professional musicians. Yeah. And we each got assigned a nineties grunge song. Yeah.
1: We were a little fortunate. I, I think I was one of the early people he hit up and I immediately was like, is Soundgarden on there or Alison Chains? We, right. uh, we talked about both. And uh, I think I can't remember what Alice in Chains song it was, but it got taken or something. So I was like, we'll do burden in my hand.
2: So that's what we're doing. so, you know, it's been a like like overfloater on the EP and like uh kickstand that you mm-hmm. did on cover our black and 3 dissecting and trying to recreate Soundgarden songs in a way that isn't shitty is right. super challenging. So Ethan's playing yeah. bass, Paul Paul Moke and I are playing guitar and then the lead singer of the Alice in Chains tribute band is going to sing and then who's the guy playing drums? My buddy Aaron
1: Tosti. He's old I've known him he's from California. We've been friends since he was I've known him since he was probably 9
2: years old. And I dude, I am I'm in the biggest Soundgarden phase of my entire mm-hmm, life, yeah. and I've obviously loved that band since Super Unknown came out, or even Bad Motorfinger, because Outshined was a big radio hit right, in the yeah. South. And so anyway, we're going to get video of that for sure. And, I want to make know. sure someone
1: I, You know what? Actually, this is uh, perfect timing. Mm-hmm. Uh, slight tangent, but it relates to Tomorrow Night. Okay. I was just gifted a GoPro camera. By whom? My niece. Wow. Oh. He's 13. Wow. What my, a sweet gift. My sister got it for her like two years ago or something. And she basically used it for like a week. And then my sister found it in the garage, like boxed back up. Hmm. She's like, would you use this? I was like, "Uh, 100% I would use this. Okay. So I could bring that tomorrow night, yeah. mount it somewhere, and we can get some footage of awesome. it.
2: Awesome. I can't wait. All right. I'm a little nervous about it, but.
1: Now, if we don't post the footage, you know that it didn't go well. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs>
2: we'll just choose to remember it in our minds. And it was great in our minds.
1: Or we'll find that we'll find the 30-second clip that sounds good and, and be like, oh, the camera shut off.
2: Crap. Ooh. Yeah, it's an older GoPro, so the battery died early. Uh, so that's happening. Anyway, th- it was nice to see the boys talking about Chris Cornell. Yeah, that's awesome. And this is, so like I was saying, this is kind of backlogged stuff. This is like content they've been getting in, you know, in dressing rooms and behind the scenes on the various arena tours over the last year or so. Right. So where we're going to camp out now is there's a really in-depth interview with James about Injustice for All. It's really cool. That I'm guessing they were compiling around the time of the release of the box set, which was around January. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, we did five or six episodes on the box set. We gave away, we've given away two box sets right. of the Justice reissue stuff. So, um, you know, we tackle, uh, here are the things that get tackled in this interview. The base being present, mm-hmm. the hazing of Jason. Working with Mike Klink. Yeah, that's interesting. The um, the aftermath of making a video, the one video. Right. James' favorite songs from the record. The, the overall theme of Justice for All. Exactly. The yeah. political nature of the record. Um and so just, you know, I'm, I am feel very grateful to Stefan for mining the depths of some of this stuff.
1: Yeah, it's really cool. Because
2: again, this is stuff that we would be asking, James. Mm-hmm, yeah. So now, <clears throat> I'm going to talk through the interview a little bit. I'm not going to read the whole thing, obviously. And then we have video clips, too. You can find all this on Metallica.com, but you have to be a fifth member, which is free.
1: That's That sounds, so, sounds expensive.
2: So just sign up for it, and then you log in, and you get access to the So What stuff. So <clears throat> this is saying, this is kind of setting it up, saying that, Uh, James Hetfield's in good spirits backstage at the Ericsson Globe in Stockholm, Sweden. So this is with the Sweden show. Okay. Um, Let's see. uh, The stage was set for an excellent look back at quite possibly the most vital album of Metallica's career. To gauge that sentiment, you'd need to remember what the band had been through in their short yet rapid rise career. Phase one of Metallica closing with the horrific tragedy of Cliff Burton's death and phase two, not yet fully determined which is why looking back and Justice for All was so utterly vital, its life, resonance, and quote-unquote new lineup, meaning Jason Newkid, uh, proving that Metallica was going to smash its way larger than life through all obstacles as opposed to drifting quietly into the background, which I guess could have happened. It could have. I mean... The death of Cliff could have really derailed their momentum from the puppets tour with Ozzy playing arenas. Then they need to start doing their own arena tours. Right. If they would have taken a year off...
1: Well, we know at one point they were even questioning continuing as a band. Yeah. You know, I mean, there, there's a, there was a chance at one point where they, Metallica would have been done after Puppets.
2: So the first clip, <clears throat> this is kind of how Stefan starts off, and he's the interviewer here. He asked James, how do you view uh, the Justice era in retrospect now as you sit and look at it? So we're going to hear a clip uh, where James is talking about sort of where the band was at with Cliff's passing, with Jason coming in, how Jason's fit in in the beginning. So let's hear that clip. All right.
0: Justice was an unsure new beginning is what it felt like to me we had done the covers album so we understood that Jason could play and would fit in with the band and then you know a, a first studio album that's one uh, I don't want to say really missing cliff but I got a little scared at that point you know having Jason on board I guess we were a little more focused on him than a whole band thing you know it was like we kind of got individualized at some point you know and it kind of sounds like that on the record you know there's a little more showmanship there's a little more more of me in the mix you know kind of thing and I don't know if the bass being down had a uh, was a little subliminal kind of hey welcome motherfucker you know Hmm. Uh, you gotta fight for your fader to go up you know, and you're right to party. We were still mourning. Oh, I would say, I was still sad that Cliff was gone, but excited that Jason was there. You know, he's able to sing. He's playing. Uh, you know, with a pick, he's fast. He's right there with the guitar. We really wanted to beat that little fanboy out of him. Hmm. You know, we we did not like the fact that there was a fanboy in there. You know, I think we were scared a little bit that. Oh, shit. Like you married a fan
1: or something. You know?
2: <laughs> now that, That's, that I've never heard him say
1: things like this. so It's interesting. I mean, I, th- I almost feel like the older James gets, the more maybe the veil is lifted off of a lot of these maybe secrets, or not secrets, but just things that everyone's assumed and they haven't really addressed specifically. Because, I mean, even him just talking about like, you know, we basically hired a
2: fan well he even says that he uh, they they edited this out of the uh the audio we just heard but the transcription actually contains him referencing rob and he says uh <clears throat> you know we heard him say uh we really wanted to beat the fanboy out of him right we didn't like the fact there was a fanboy in there and he said uh you know he said they'd be doing interviews and jason's whole vibe was like Oh it's such a dream they didn't like that yeah And he says, uh, I didn't hear any of that from Rob when he first joined. Rob was like, this is great. I'm looking forward to kicking some ass. And that's that. So, you know, on one hand, Jason being such a fan is part of what was the synergy of him being in the band was that. And I think what we all resonated with was we felt like one of us was in the band. Right. And that opened it up in this whole different way. But I could see how for these little punk rock thrash metal kids mm-hmm. that were making this shit, yeah. that they were like, We don't want a fucking fan in here. We right. want we, get wants, it on we want someone in- who's almost a little indifferent to what we've accomplished. Right. I get it on the inside. That's how they would feel.
1: But in retrospect, that fanboy in Jason is why we got one of the most amazing performers in that band. And he was almost like the hype guy. He got the crowd going. He had mm-hmm. great backup vocals, you know, great stage presence. Like he was his excitement as a fan of the band joining Metallica is why we got the Jason that we
2: did for thirteen years. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too. Like, <clears throat> I can't really tell the the. It's almost like James is he's he's obviously complimenting. him. He's like, you know, w- it was great. He could play fast. Mm-hmm. He played with a pick. He was right there with a the guitar. But there's also a small tinge of him still kind of jabbing him a little bit. I mean, I th- I think in a way James is is conducting this interview,
1: especially this question. Or, or this subject, in retrospect, you know, this is how we were feeling and thinking at that time. Yeah. I, I don't think. I think if if, if a follow up question was, "Do you still feel that way about that era?" He might be like, "No, I mean, we this is that's just where we were in life." I mean, especially with how much he kind of talks about and mentions, you know, we were still, you know, mourning Cliff's loss, right? You know, so I don't. I would like to believe and I don't think that he he thinks that way anymore. I think he's just he's talking about that time period and where they were in their Well headspace. and
2: in typical James fashion, I mean he's being honest and he's being <clears throat> frank and direct mm-hmm. and that's what I want from him anyway. And I don't I don't
1: think Jason would actually disagree with any of that.
2: Yeah, I think that's true too. You know? Um Stefan follows up and he basically says, like, well, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but you could all kind of read this yourself at Metallica.com but Stefan's so basically like, that. didn't that start to change? Didn't he start to evolve out of that, out of that new kid living the dream thing into more of a peer? And James says, he says, yeah, he says he was contributing, which definitely helped take that fanboy just standing there away. He says, and that did go away, and there was obviously a major hazing period that continued. He says, I think he tried to outgrow that, taking more control of certain things, and then it showed up as maybe a little threatening to Lars and I. He says, Lars and I have been steering the ship for a long time, and now someone else is wanting to have some wheel time. He says, so it was all very new for us. Cliff was a certain personality, very strong, did things his way, but was always reliable and loyal, extremely loyal. And Jason came in with a different attitude. It was bouncy. He reminded me of a basketball. (laughs) I don't know why, but he was always moving, always. Uh, Yeah. And and I I I think what's surprising on my journey, learning more about Metallica by doing the podcast, one of the things that surprised me... Was to hear how, in certain aspects that I did not expect, Cliff was pretty hands-off. He, he would goes, go I mean, do his parts in the studio, and then he famously, because he didn't enjoy being in Copenhagen... Yeah, he would take off. He would leave. and then or, or, sometime, he would, or he would come late. He, he would just wouldn't show up to the fucking <laughs> curb, what we call a curb call, which is when you show up to the airport.
1: Right, he would miss his
2: flight. He's like, well, you guys are just going to get there and argue for the first whatever, and and, and get sounds. Right. I'll come in later... And then I've heard, you know, when we were exploring the Justice box set and diving into interviews with James about Cliff, it's like, um, not Justice, but the puppet stuff. Right, yeah. Um, He's like, you know, he would show up like kind of unrehearsed. Yeah, I mean, and, but that's
1: kind of what his life was. It was very almost like a hippie mentality, right. just like let's just go with the flow, man. Like,
2: but I think that, and and it's well documented on this podcast and in all the literature that James really looked up to Cliff. Mm-hmm, yeah, and I just think they just really respected him. And yeah, they
1: wouldn't. They weren't going to argue with him about him being late or him no, missing his flight. Or there thing. wasn't going to be a band meeting like Cliff. We need to talk to you, right? But when Jason shows up, it's like okay, we like you said, we've been steering this ship for a while. Right, you're going to come in, you know, and. Thankfully, Jason, I think it's a a plus side that he was this kind of fanboy that was like a basketball and always bouncing around and stuff. Because right. they never, they probably never had to worry about him as far as being late or whatever. He was probably the first one to bus call, first one to the airport. He was always probably just like, I'm here, ready to but go. But I think
2: in a way that eagerness rubbed them wrong because it was so antithetical to the way, to the way sure. Cliff was. Because Cliff just had such a confident self-assuredness that I think James looked to. Yeah. And I think when the the, the tables flipped on that, there was something kind of a turn off about it. Mm-hmm. It's like in relationships, like if i don't know if you know we you and i haven't been in the the uh, courting dating game in so goddamn long but True. I remember if you wanted to if you wanted to be with someone so badly and they if they showed you enough too much attention in that whole game, it was almost a turn off. Right. It was almost like wanting this thing that you thought you couldn't have or something. Yeah. And then if someone seemed too eager, you were kind of like it pushed you away a little. Yeah.
1: Bit. Do girls still like to go to
2: TJ Fridays for the first date? I think they do. And pretend it's your birthday and get a free dessert? I think they love to play skee-ball. Perfect. And then if you accumulate enough tickets at Showbiz <laughs> or at Chuck E. Cheese...
1: There's a time in my life where I'm single again, God forbid.
2: i so, doing that. Stefan goes on to ask and he says, At the time, did Jason contribute any ideas, musically, creatively, that you now look back and think, that was actually a pretty good riff, but we weren't going to let you have it? Mm. And James says, no. He said, if there's good stuff, we're going to use it. He said, we don't care. Uh... And Stefan says, could you hear his good stuff? Do you think you were objective enough to be able to hear his good material? Or was it just like, no, this is us. You're still learning. James says, I was probably as objective as I could have been, probably less than I am now. Not even probably, absolutely less than I am now. He says, now hearing something from anybody that's good, let's use it. Let's go. He says, we've always had that attitude, but you know, I can't tell you exactly where my head was right there. I think that's proven, I think James is. Uh, vindicated by the fact that Blackened made the record, right? Yeah, I mean that was Jason's first record, you know. I mean, and it's the title track, and it's it's definitely one of the best Metallica songs ever. The title track. The title track. <laughs> Did I say that?
1: <laughs> yeah. Did I say title track? <laughs> yeah, but I, I was just thinking, like, it might be pretty, that would be a bitchin' album
2: title, follow up to Master Puppet's Are you telling me that the record's not called Blackened after oh, all this time? That's what I thought. I
1: can go grab my uh, copy on vinyl and double check, but I'm pretty sure it's not called Blackened. But
2: that would be a great album title. All right. Well, so moving on. Um, Safarn so starts asking James about the political nature of the record. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's short of straw being about. Uh, the being blacklisted and McCarthyism and the communism scare. Of course, the song Injustice for All, I mm-hmm. have um, the Beholder, have the, the Freedom to Choose and Your Own Choice. Right. All this stuff. So this next clip is uh, him speaking specifically about um, <clears throat> Harvester of Sorrow and Shortest Straw and then the bigger themes of the record. Right, yeah. So let's hear that. All right. Yeah,
1: Shortest Straw, Harvester of
0: Sorrow, two songs that, I mean, everyone who has had in any way an insecure
2: or an anxious or a fearful thought will relate to those songs forever. I mean, were you surprised to find yourself writing that stuff? Did it resonate with you in
0: that way? I mean, you know, bring us through the process that got those out of here. Shortest straw, for sure. To me, that's more political than any of the other songs, really. I mean, it talks about a time, McCarthyism, and the artists not being able to be free, but also, (laughs) <laughs> communism is a problem you know all of that kind of bunched up into one and it seems like every generation has that happening you know whether it's pc-ness versus you know there's an artist that says this and that's not pc but, well, so what you know he's an artist or free speech you know and justice for all again a continuation or of more of a ramp up into putting ourselves into situations or somehow relating to them, even though they might be historical or from the past, still plugging into the feelings that uh, are, are human. Yeah, infanticide. Right. Kinda, that was a cool word to me, so it kind of built a song around it. <laughs> <laughs> infanticide, what the hell is that? The killing of an infant, whoa, that's brutal. Yeah, being trapped, it kind of seems like that's a theme, always. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I mean, kind of the overall theme of the record, you know, even you know, getting past the political side of it, it, was just freedom of choice. And you know, either yes, the Beholder, For Shaw, Dyer's Eve, you know, all of that just kind of had that thread. Yeah, I guess you could say that, you know, at that point we had discovered that, well, there's two sides to every coin and let's investigate both sides. It was not choosing any sides and, uh, you know, being able to see that there are two sides, you know. So the lyrics back then were pretty much, you know, here's my view. I start writing, or I hear or see something, and something in me, especially back then, identifies with it. I don't know how or why. I had no inventory of my feelings, my past actions, my damage. None of that was on the radar. So it was just connecting because it felt. I felt something.
2: So I find that very fascinating. Very much so, yeah. Especially because... so. <clears throat> I've been thinking a lot about this. I think where we really begin to see James exploring his own shit mm-hmm. is with Dyer's Eve. Yeah. Dear Mother, Dear Father, Earth. Because <laughs> <laughs> it'll <laughs> always be that for me. I can't I can't <laughs> it help will, it. Yes. I, it it will, when,
1: yes. When whenever I listen to Justice and that song comes on, that's what I hear.
2: And and we all know, uh, or maybe you don't know out there, faithful metal podcast family, but uh, Dire's Eve is a, a huge indictment on... James's religious upbringing mm-hmm. and and uh, his resentment towards his parents for you know shielding him from from higher truths, right? Yeah. To borrow a Chris Cornell phrase. Um, <clears throat> before that, it's it's Master of Puppets about an indictment on someone else who's a drug addict, or mm-hmm. it's Sanitarium, a story about a guy in an insane asylum, um, blackened about the the environment. Mm-hmm. Sort of straw about about McCarthyism,
1: right? This is—I mean, this is very much a political record. It's—I mean—it's a very introspective record. I—I um, I feel like, but Dire's
2: Eve is where I think it's personal. Yes, like, exactly. There's nothing really. One is about a war guy. Sure. Um. Uh. Into sanity is kind of another insane asylum guy.
1: Right, but when he's talking about like uh, you know stuff about you know um, somebody saying something and, and it's you know offensive, but who cares? He's the it's the, he, that's his he's an artist. Yes, that's his art. Yeah. I think that's also James himself, right? Writing lyrics like this that maybe uh, at the time and maybe even now might be a not necessarily controversial, but kind of like whoa, I can't believe you're singing about that. Well, so what? I'm the artist. Like this is this is how I feel. This is what I want to sing about. Mm-hmm. And I like that that he came to. You know, a place in his life on this record and writing these songs that he's comfortable with that, and that he can put it out on record and not be embarrassed by
2: it or anything like that. You know, but it's like, just so fascinating that because that is a question I would ask him. If like when you were writing this record, where we're really starting to see a more personal thing mm-hmm. that's not we're going to wear leather and kick ass tonight, <laughs> right? Which isn't just, which is always a good thing because even think about. I mean, I guess I guess Fade to Black. Would be the closest personal thing because their gear got stolen and he was suicidal. Mm-hmm. But Five, fire with fire is another sort of you know nuclear holocaust right. tune. Ride the lightning is a comment on capital punishment. Um, Half the
1: songs on Kill 'Em All are just about the metal scene.
2: Right, and, you know, Creepy Metal Death Militia is, a, is about the Book of Exodus. Right, <clears> The <throat> Four Horsemen is another kind of apocalyptic biblical type vibe. Right, Yeah, Metal Militia, we're gonna march in and um, but it, so you're exploring like why were you getting more personal and his answer being um i don't know how or why i had no inventory of my feelings my past actions my traumas my damage none of that was on the radar i was just connecting because i felt something that's interesting to me i mean i appreciate the honesty of it too he's like well so,
1: yeah absolutely he
2: was just he was just in the fire writing and he right. it wasn't this whole like i feel this way i want to <laughs> exercise this feeling i want to write a personal song about my parents That's just what came out.
1: Well, and, and, you know, I think you and I can both relate as songwriters that there's times where you're uh, maybe going, you know, forth to something, a song idea, and, oh, here's the content. Here's what I want to write about that thinks to be a cool subject. And maybe you write some line that all of a sudden triggers something that, you know, you didn't intend on writing about. You know, maybe Dire's Eve originally, he was writing about something completely different, but... Something, something sparked inside of me where I was like, wow, Like that line actually can relate to something that happened in my past, and like that would be a good thing to write about. I've been there where I wrote, I started writing a song, and literally halfway through, I'm like, this is taking, or it's t- just taking on a whole new meaning. I'm like, wait a second, and then that all of a sudden alters the next verse, or I redo the first verse, redo the whole song, and then it's a whole new beast than what I intended
2: it to be. I remember reading a Jeff Tweedy interview. Are you a Wilco guy at all? I'm not huge, but I, I think they're a great band. Okay, I'm a massive Wilco fan. And uh, they have a record called A Ghost is Born, which they won a couple of Grammys for, 2001. Okay. <clears throat> Actually, forgive me, that was the Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. This is like 2004. In fact, I know it's 2004. Okay. And Rob Thomas is the singer, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and what we came to learn about that year, the year that they was writing that record, A Ghost is Born, is that so Jay Bennett, who was the guitar player in Woco, died of a drug a drug related death. Okay, so the band went down to a four piece, and and a Ghost is Born is a very dark record. Jeff played all the lead guitar on it. It's really funky, crazy lead guitar playing because okay. he's not really a guitar player. Yeah, and this it's probably their greatest work almost in some ways because yeah. it's so otherworldly. It's very Beatles, but also very like Dinosaur Jr. I already want to listen to it. Oh, it, it's 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 almost painful to listen to cuz it's it's kind of an art record. Yeah. But it's absolutely stunningly beautiful, lyrically amazing. Once so after they toured that record, he checked himself into rehab for a pill and alcohol Jeff addiction. Jeff Tweedy. Yeah, Jeff Tweedy. Okay. Where he it's like came out that he was like really really fucked up. Yeah. Depressed, on drugs. And he talks about how he's often praised for the lyrical insight and depth of that record. Mm-hmm. And he said that when he got clean, he would go tour. He was still playing those songs live, and he's like, "I had no idea what those songs meant when I was writing them because he was in this crazy fog." Right. And he's like, "Now that I'm, you know, clean and sober and present, and I'm singing these lyrics every night to audiences, but I'm also almost it was almost like a letter to myself." Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm he was teasing out themes that he didn't even know were there. Wow. And I I feel like that's kind of what James is describing a little bit. Yeah. I mean,
1: I I can definitely see that, you know, from a songwriting perspective, you know, you might be in a weird headspace writing a song, uh, you know, like Jeff Tweedy might be, you know, on drugs or depressed or whatever. I mean, I've definitely written stuff when I've been depressed or anxious or whatever. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the difference for me is I know what I'm writing, but looking back on certain things, I'm like, wow, like why did I use that line or whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, like, um, it's a cool, I mean, it, it's one of those beauties of being an artist and, and creating something is oftentimes you have to be in some kind of interesting space mentally or even physically or whatever to, for something to come out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's times where, you know, like my, I love my st- HQ one, I love my studio. It's fun. It's, it's a good vibe, you know? Um, but there's times where I just get stuck down here. You know, and I might just go sit in my backyard, or when I go on the road, I take a guitar with me, and I'm I sit in a different area, or I'm in a different headspace, and all of a sudden, something different comes out. So maybe something like that. I mean, I'm not saying everyone needs to like get hooked on drugs and pills to write great songs, but in, in, I am in, saying in, that in, in that case, <laughs> Kilian saying that I don't endorse it. But <laughs> um, but you know, it's one of those things that you know, it sucks that he was doing drugs and all that stuff, but man, man you know, coming out on the other side of it on the positive end. Ended up writing a great record. Yeah. You know, and uh, maybe with James, with Justice for All, you know, he tapped into some very personal stuff and uh, he had to be in that headspace at the time of his life to, to write that stuff. I don't know if James in, in 2019 could write, you know, maybe he could still write A Dire's Eve, but maybe not like A Eye of the Beholder or...
2: Well, yeah, I mean, you, and we also have this the benefit of hindsight and you end up sort sure. of re-engineering meaning and purpose from... From where we sit now, which is real easy to do. Right. Yeah. You know how that is. It's like real easy to explain something you did now. You're like, oh well, maybe I was going through this and that. When you're doing it, Mm -hmm. you're just you're just in the fire. You're just doing it. Yeah. And it'd be really difficult to like describe why you feel the way you Mm -hmm. feel or why it's coming through you in a certain lyrical concept. Absolutely. Um now moving into the sound of justice and the mixing, because as we all remember, if we've all been doing our homework, they mixed this record while on the Monsters of Rock tour. So they're playing the Monsters of Rock tour, and then that show would end. Jason and Kirk are going to get back on the bus and who knows, do whatever they were doing. Lars and James were going to Bearsville in upstate New York and mixing the record. Right. And they were doing that for the whole tour. Okay, so I think that's an important uh, key to some of the fidelity issues of justice sure because the the lack of base is just this huge mystery i think in this interview we we're learning more than we ever have yeah so he's asked uh talk about the mixing on the monsters of rock through is what james has to say he says he says uh it was easy in the beginning because we were on the east coast and closer to bearsville uh he says and then as we got further away we weren't taking the charter plane at that point we were in a limo i remember the drive from bearsville to washington dc for a gig it was long Lars and I were sleeping in the back of a car after being up mixing. He says, it was very taxing getting up, doing a show. He says, doing a show was the easy part because we felt energy, but going and mixing the record was the harder part. Being in there mixing stuff, he says, there were times but that it felt like going to war, (laughs) mixing with Lars Ulrich. He says, and James Hetfield, he takes some responsibility for it too. Um, He says, I'd leave for a little bit, all of a sudden I'd come back and the drums are louder. You know, yeah, like, right, yeah. they were just having that battle, turn the guitars up, turn the drums up, the yeah. ego, you know? And uh, he said, he talks about how they learned later that, like, if they would just have a talk about it, they could avoid all this fighting. Mm-hmm. But I guess back then, it's 1988, they're ascending at an insane level, they're young, they're mourning Cliff, Right. they got yeah. the new guy in the band, they're just dealing with a bunch of well, shit. Well, it's
1: also, I mean, when you're in the middle of a tour and trying to mix a record, it's not like it is now where you can just get files sent to you and listen to them over and over and over again. Back then, I mean, CDs were around, but it was a very new technology. I mean, maybe they had, you know, some kind of CD player on the road where they could listen to the mixes. No, and, it was tapes. He even so, says this.
2: He, he says we would. He says basically they would come back from mix with a rough. Okay, on, on cassette. On a cassette. He says, and we'd put it on on the bus, and everyone would say, oh, it sounds like shit. And they're like, oh, great, thanks, dude. You go <laughs> mix it, you know? And... Uh, So Stefan asks, he's really pressing this point. He says, did you ever sit down with Jason at any point when he was in the band and say, you know, dude, we kind of did do a bit of a number on the bass, on the record, and I'm sorry. This is what happened. This is why we felt we had to do it. He said, did you ever talk to him about it? And James simply says, no. No. He says, (laughs) never. He never asked you once. He never came up to you and said, guys, this sounds less than I expected. And James says, I think this is interesting. He says, he probably did. I don't know what my answer was then, but it was kind of done. He says, I will say, it was not all about fuck him, let's turn it down. That's for sure. We wanted the best sounding record we could make, which we've said this before. Sure. He says, that was our goal. We were burnt. We were were fried. He says, going back and forth, playing a gig, no earphones, or no earplugs, no nothing. You go back to the studio, you're hearing a shot. He said, if your ears can't hear any high end anymore, you're going to turn it up. So we're turning the high end up more and more and more, and all of a sudden, the low end's gone. He says, I know that played a bigger part than any hazing or any ill feelings towards Jason, for sure. We were fried. We were burnt.
1: This is not a, a, a lot of info that I actually knew until this interview.
2: Well, we What's, talked about that. I mean, like, we knew that they mixed it that way and that they were fatigued because they were also, this is Alcoholica, I mean, they were also partying.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, they're probably, you know, finishing a show, getting super hammered, drunk, then hopping on the charter plane, going up to the, you know, to mix the record showing up no sleep hung over no sleep yeah. your
2: ears are shot ringing and let's know. talk about that for just for briefly like that's a real thing you we call it like losing your ears like mm-hmm. you know i'm sure paul does this all the time i know i do when i'm mixing like you just listen to it so much that you just got to take a break you have to yeah because you you start to lose your objectivity because uh, you get ear fatigue
1: yeah ear fatigue is a real thing i mean you listen to something it doesn't even have to be at a loud volume it's just something that's over and over and over and over again your ears are going to get tired. Your ears are going to start, and your brain are going to start playing tricks on you, and you might think it sounds good, but then you walk away from it, go to bed, come up the next morning, fire up your studio, listen to what you mixed the night before, and in your memory, you're like, oh, that sounded pretty rad before I went to bed last and night. Then you're doing and then you listen do that, you're like, oh, You're
2: like, wow, that's Horrible. bad. Exactly. Well, so now another guy that's sitting in on this interview is a guy named Dan. Dan is the guy who curates these box sets. So for whatever... Thank you, Dan. I mean, he's given deep vault access. Yeah. So he goes into Lars's crazy vault and he's the one who curates these box sets. I mean, obviously, gets final approval, but he's the one who, you know how they come with all these crazy live shows? Remember yeah, when we yeah. listened to that one show where they're like super drunk? Yeah. He's the one who kind of finds all these and is like, this would be interesting to include. Yeah. And uh, so he's there too and he asks, um, or he mentioned Steve Thompson, the guy that mixed it. Now, Steve Thompson has kind of come out recently and been like, I'm embarrassed by the sound of Injustice for All. I wanted to quit. Remember, we've talked about this. Yeah,
1: no, there's a clip online of him talking about it.
2: So he says, he brings this up to James. He says, in recent years, Steve Thompson, who's the mixing engineer, has been talking about how, A, the record sounds shitty, and B, you can blame 100% of it on Lars, because he was the one who made me turn the bass down, and we tried to do all these other things, which he says, I find that to be unfair. He says that to James. James says, we wanted it tight. We wanted it fucking tight. Uh, he says, we wanted the snare, we wanted the guitar, we wanted everything up front and in your face and really tight. And we thought we got it. He says, we kind of know what we want to sound like. He says, we, can we sit behind a desk and make it happen? No. We ask other people to do it and they do it. He says, so Steve did his job. He's got nothing to apologize for or point fingers at. No one's to blame for a quote unquote something. It's a piece of art. It happened and it ended up the way it is for a reason. And for reasons we were just talking about, we were burnt, we were traveling, we're playing a gig, our ears are fried, we're not sleeping. He doesn't need to defend himself. He was part of an awesome album in history. Wow. And I think he should maybe be a little easier on himself. Ooh. Wow. A nice
1: turnaround, James. I like your Owen Wilson. Wow. Wow.
2: Wow. How's your performance? No, I mean, that, that's. I
1: mean, that's, a, that's a, very, it's a very, you know, 56-year-old James thing to say. And, I mean, I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, though, too. I mean, I, he, he's right. I mean, even Jason himself has said, listen sure, the bass could have been louder, but that's not the way the record was. That's not the way that it turned out. It's a piece of art, and it was recorded at a time uh, in period, and that's how it came out. So everyone, be happy with that. You know, that, that was their intention. It wasn't like it was an accident.
2: Well, and he says this. He says, all this bass discussion is after the fact. He says, uh, why would you want to change history? Why would you all of a sudden put bass on it? He says, there is bass on it, but why would you remix it? you can remaster it, yes, but why would you remix something and make it different? He says, I'm not cons- comparing us to the Mona Lisa, but it'd be like, can you make her smile a little better? He's like, I- and I get it. He's like, why? It's sure. just done. It's over.
1: Right. I mean, obviously a lot of us, you know, huge Metallica fans would would love at least just like a one-time stream only of listening to a re- remix version. I, I personally, I- I'm not going to like, you know, be the guy for years and years that's like, I wish it had bass on it, but I would one time just to like like to go into a studio. They pull up the Justice raw mm-hmm. reels and just pump that bass and listen through it one time. Yeah, be like, all right, cool, I'm sure. cool. Honestly, I feel like what my reaction would end up being is, oh, that was cool. I'll listen to the normal version because I've listened to that since
2: the '80s. Well, and like you can hear it on Seattle eighty nine. You can hear all of Jason's of course, bass yeah. parts. So. It's not like a huge mystery. I just want to hear what he actually played and like how, you know what I mean? Like
1: it's more more or less just I love Jason so much and I love his bass playing. Yeah. I want to hear what he did specifically on these songs, Um, but I'm not going to harp on that the rest of my
2: life, you know? So moving out of that a little bit into uh, the song one and the video. So he's asked, uh, he says, is your management, meaning Q Prime, which we've, we've, I'm a big fan of Q Prime. Yeah especially as players in this big Metallica story, I think Q Prime has been a really impressive example of management that just really got it right. Well, there's not
1: a lot of management companies out there that, that
2: are have
1: one artist they work with for as long as this. Yeah, I mean, it's impressive how long they've been together.
2: Well, so he asked, did management ever say when putting Justice together, guys, it'd be really great if you could give us a song that maybe is five and a half or six minutes long for like a single? Right. Because one would be a break. A kind of unlikely breakout hit for mm-hmm. them yeah uh but i love the idea where he's like did your management ever give you g- grief about that and i love james says never he says no one's ever said that he said i'm the one saying it let's shorten up these fucking songs <laughs> he says when we went on tour supporting justice that's when i discovered these songs are really long he said we we're playing close to two hours and the set list is so short well, L-
1: Lars has said that in, in, in past. I think we've probably even inserted a clip at some point where he, you know, they figured that out. Yeah, during the show, they're like, "Fuck these songs!" It, it's, it, it's. I think it was Kirk.
2: Sort of, they would look out and see how like tired the crowd looked. Right,
1: it, it, a lot of it, I think, it was uh, referencing when they were going into the black album and, as to why they wrote such shorter songs too. Like our fans are tired. These are songs are eight
2: minutes long. Yeah. Well, so now we're going to hear an interesting clip about the one video and about a disgruntled quote unquote true. Who was so upset with James that they made a video that he spit on him. Love it. So let's hear James talk about that.
0: As far as the one video, the one video, doing that video was a lot of fun. I remember I had on my guitar the Eat Fuck or whatever. I had something on my guitar. And It was the first time I, I've, I felt like I had compromised when the producer said, you know, you gotta take that off your guitar. I was like, what the fuck? And it was something like that. It was something on my guitar that I... And I was like, no way, no fucking way. And management was like, hey, man, you know, just do it, you know. Think, eat fuck on inside, you know, or whatever it was, you know. It's like, all right, all right. It's not worth fighting that. Getting a video out there and doing it, I think, is." isn't gonna be way 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 better for people to absorb this whether my guitar says something or not when we went back to the bay area i remember going to the stone which was on broadway street went to see some metal band of course back when there were a stone and metal bands playing on broadway i remember this large man coming up to me and he's like "Fuck you and he spit on me. What the fuck? You sold out, man. You made a video. And right then I, I I knew we're gonna have to deal with some of these people. Or we're gonna lose some fans because they're they don't get it. They don't get what we're doing. They don't get that we're taking it to the next level. We're taking it to the masses, and they're gonna get a taste of Metallica and he didn't like it it was a sad moment you know but we always tried just to be you know the guys who live down the street (laughs) and make noise in their garage you know we always tried to be those guys and still continue to try to be that and people's vision of you that's when I realized people want you to be something for themselves you you represent something for them and if it if it looks weird or something changes it scares them and they don't feel stable anymore so they take it out on you
2: yeah. and that was i mean was it upset was upsetting to have people do
0: that mm-hmm. or sure oh. did it fuel your anger even more? Oh, absolutely <laughs> yeah yeah more anger more more so like fuck you we're gonna show you yeah, kind of he's the reason we made a lot of videos. We've got to find this guy. I want to know who this was. Hardwired to self-destruct. I said, we've got to do one for every song for that fucking guy at the stone.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Okay, so there's some deep shit, I think, there. So first of all, in, it's yeah. interesting to see that, to hear a sort of like concrete example of how the pushback from the trues was already happening in 88 in 89. and 89. Yeah, and
1: that was just for one video.
2: And, and they actually, the transcript, they edited it out, but he says... Right then, I knew there's some fucking idiots in the world that we're going to have to deal with. They took that out. Right. Because uh, that's pretty that's pretty intense. But sure. it's true. A guy who would come up to James Hetfield and spit on him for making a music video is a fucking idiot. Uh, yeah, that's pretty dumb. I mean...
1: Super dumb. I mean, I, I, I can't justify what the guy did. I can understand maybe like as a true fan back then when, you know... Their, only their fourth record came out. They'd never made a music video. They were this underground band. They were your band. And you live in San Francisco, and they, they live in San Francisco. It's like this connection. I can understand being frustrated like, man, that sucks. Like MTV's so popular. And then my favorite band, who were underground and, and cool and whatever, made a video. They sold out. But to walk up to the dude that did it and tell him that and tell him fuck you
2: and spit on him? You're a jerk.
1: That's an asshole move. Come on.
2: Well, I think James says some really deep shit here, honestly. He says, that's when I realized that people want you to be something for themselves. Yes, I love this part. You represent something for them and if it looks weird or something changes, which I would insert the word evolves, Mm -hmm. then it scares them and they don't feel stable anymore. Right. So they take it out on you. That is some deep shit, and that is exactly the diagnosis of the trues who got whatever, whether it's Fade to Black, or whether it's the slow part of Orion, or whether it's they made a fucking video, or they shortened their songs, you know, because we really have, in fact, we have justice to thank, in my opinion, in my research with this band... For what would the the justice is so important to what would become the Black Album? I, I agree 100%. because that's where they really saw the limits of the long progressive thrash thing. They they went right. to the edge of it,
1: and that's what that record is. I mean, that's what you we know when when it's the most technical record, Absolutely. the longest songs, all this stuff. Easily,
2: I think that was their last bit of gas on yeah. the thrash metal era. Well, I just think they took it. They took it far, and you know, James says that in in the previous quote, he says. Uh, they don't get that we're taking it to the next level, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm kind of hearing foreshadows as a black album. He says we're taking it to the masses. Yeah, they're going to get a taste of Metallica, and he didn't like that the masses were going to get a taste of Metallica. Yeah, sure. And that's petty and lame. It happened with the Beatles too. You know, the Beatles famously played like the Star Club in Germany and would do yeah. these seven-hour sets that where they were wearing all leather. They were like a, they were like a the old, they were like Aerosmith in the seventies. Right. Yeah. Before they were the mop top Fab Four in suits. Right. They were like. They were like a pill popping rough band. Did John Lennon allegedly fucking kicked a guy to death? These were some crude motherfuckers. Jeez, I and didn't then, know when, that. <laughs> yeah, you got to read a book called "The Lives of John Lennon" by Albert Goldman. Okay, it's a big hit piece. Okay, it's okay. intense. But they were they were like a band you didn't want to run into in an alley. Yeah. Then they blew up, and everyone they're like, "Oh, but they're they they belong to us, though. We don't right. want them to belong to the world. But that's that betrays. That's not love. That's not love of a band. I want my favorite band, I want everybody to hear them. Agreed. And I want everybody to love them, and I want to share it with the world.
1: Right, yeah. I mean, it's it's kind of fun to say, like, oh, I I, I kind of knew before, you know. For, yeah, like, you got but in but on it. it. It's You feel fun. like you're
2: part of some exclusive club it's or something. It's a
1: fun thing. It's nothing more than just a fun thing. But it, if it's... you
2: want your favorite band to just wallow in the obscurity of regional clubs, mm-hmm. then you're a selfish fuck. And there's no room for that, especially with a band as ingenious as Metallica.
1: Right. I mean, I think if Metallica would have finished Justice and then tried to outdo that, not in the way the Black Album did, but tried to make another thrash record, and it basically kept making thrash records. I don't know if... I mean, the big four wouldn't have a huge gap between three and then Metallica. Yeah. I mean, Metallica would be... That's true. would, Would maybe be playing... In Nashville Municipal Auditorium. Where Slayer plays. Right. You know, they played, I saw them at War Memorial, smaller than that. You know, Anthrax on a headlining tour played Marathon Music Works.
2: I think you had a, yeah, I think you had a generous assessment of that. It's like, I don't want to be unempathetic to that feeling. Right. Like, okay. And I think James nailed it. This guy, let's just take the the spitting guy as a a template. Spitty McGee. Metallica represented something so personal for him and he identified with it so personally that when it evolved past where he was, it scared him. Of course, yeah. And it, and you know, uh, I had a tour manager once that always said, mad people are sad people. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, he's mad and angry and wants to spit on James because he's actually really sad and confused because his identity... Is shaky now that was
1: just because of a video
2: that wasn't you, even the record it was a video let alone <laughs> if that guy is all butthurt about the one video which one is a thrash masterpiece mm-hmm. oh my god what's he gonna do when he gets to enter sandman and until it sleeps oh my gosh until it's for real doth my high knee fall out of my <laughs> my, my buttocks fell clean off
1: Distresses me to see the Until It Sleeps video. Tightens no my anus. Up. Does it to see the Until It
2: Sleeps video with James Rudd shit on his face.
1: I mean, yeah. It, listen to your point when you say you know the, the artists you love. You want to see them succeed. You want to see the masses listen to them. You want everyone to be a part of the party. Absolutely. Right? Like for instance, uh, it's over your shoulder, but
2: uh, Julian Baker, mm-hmm. this artist in Nashville, that the Gimp. What? The Gimp? The Gimp? You have a Gimp that lives in your basement, remember? In your, in your studio. And he stands behind me. It's true. Don't turn around, by the okay. way. Okay. No, but Julian Baker is,
1: uh, is a great artist. I've, I played one of her songs on a radio episode. And you were talking about it. when you, you walked in, you're like, man, I got to get this girl's record. Mm-hmm. Like, This is a great album. Yeah. This is one of those artists that I'm like... I mean, she has gotten pretty popular. And, and she, I think she sold out the Ryman once. Mm. Oh, cool. Um, but she does very well. But I, I want her personally... And selfishly to be bigger, you know, and maybe be her drummer. <laughs> yeah, but no, I, I want everyone to hear that record. You know, Absolutely. anytime I get excited about a record, <clears throat> even when Hardwired came out, Metallica's already the biggest band in the world, but I still want more people to hear it. Dude, especially, I was showing
2: that record off. I played it on the bus. Oh hell yeah! And, you know, especially I did. the people that
1: kind of wrote Metallica off a long time ago. They're like, hey, I haven't listened to things since the Blacko, and you're like, well, you missed out on a lot of good shit. But check out Hardware because right. it's amazing. Like that. You you want that for your friends, for your favorite bands, for the people you love, for the artists you love, and and it's not like I want them to go off and, and get rich and famous and make a bunch of money. That's going to happen with that success, but you want other people to maybe feel something you feel when you listen to that record.
2: It's such um it's it's just my normal boot up software. So yeah. like it's so alien to me to not want that. Yeah, that I, it's hard for me to really even talk about it. I would think that that Spitty McGee, we're going to call him. Yeah,
1: um, at the stone mm-hmm. I would imagine that <clears throat> he only connected with Metallica Records just on a thrash level like it's heavy and fast and I could fucking bang my head to it I don't think that guy was a very like deep cat as far as yeah like, but
2: let's just keep it and kill them all then he's got a real problem with the middle part of Four Horsemen he's got a real problem with the bridge to No Remorse and then right with banging on with lightning he's got a real problem with Fade to Black and right. Call of Cthulhu he so, escape yeah Um, I still think Escape's Escapes thrashy. I love Escape. I love
1: Escape. That is not my least favorite Metallica song, not by a long shot.
2: All right, so now moving on. This is another interesting... We talked about this a little bit on the Rust in Peace episode. Mike Klink produced that, right? Yeah. And his connections to Metallica. We know that for a few weeks he came in to, he was going to produce Justice yeah. because Lars was a huge guns freak and Appetite for Destruction was just pummeling the planet. Pummeling is the perfect Which I, re, I, re, I was on the planet, then I remember it. Yeah, I oh, st- yeah. I'm still, dude, every second of Appetite is still just entrenched in me. I
1: wish that I still had my original cassette that I got through a friend because I, I, I couldn't go with my parents to Tower Records or wherever in, in mm-hmm. California and buy it. I wish I still had the version of the cassette that my mom ripped up and I taped back together. That'd be a great piece to well,
2: have. Well, so what we've learned through some of the deep dives into the box set is that Mike came in because Fleming was unavailable, because Fleming had just produced Master of Puppets and was probably pretty heard, fucking busy. Have you heard of it? And he probably had the power to be like, sorry, Metallica, I'm not available. And then they were like, well, we'll just get Mike Klink. Mike Klink came in and just did not vibe with the band. And we've we've heard from Mike about it. You know, There's a blurb in the Justice book that comes in the box set where even Mike himself mm-hmm. weighs in on it. And we know that they kept the... uh, He engineered Harvester, and I think he engineered... Was it uh, Blitzkrieg and
1: The Prince? Uh, The Prince uh, or... I think The Prince and Breadfan. Breadfan. And then
2: he has one engineering credit on On Harvester. Harvester, For the drums. So it was interesting to hear... uh, So Stefan says, do you have any memories about starting the project with Mike Klink? How did that recording process go? And we're going to hear from the man himself, Jimmy James Hetfield, senior, junior, senior, Esquire. The second. Right here.
0: Well, I recall, you know, studio shopping and we decided on the you know, one-on-one place. Loved the, 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 uh, the, the control room, nice and big. And that's kind of what we were used to at Sweet Silence. And a uh, big room, you know, right there, uh, I think, in Burbank. Uh, but Fleming wasn't available. Something happened. I don't know, the timing was off. So he couldn't come in. And we wanted to get started, and you know my I, I, l- I love music, I listen to music a lot. I don't know a lot of the business side, the behind you know who produced that, who engineered that? who managed this? That's Lars. you know he he investigates the players behind, you know, and uh, he was infatuated with guns N' Roses and uh, you know the sound. Of that first record, the guitar sound, the drum, everything—it sounded very lively, very, you know, you know, remind me a little bit of the first Van Halen. You know, it's just—it's a party, it's live. Lars wanted that. Lars, you know, we, we, we always sound so sterile, and you know, you know, which is ironic because I'd say that, and Justice for All is probably the most sterile of all records of all time. Um, that so he my said clink that. was called. Right, and he, he was brought in, and we tried. We tried. <laughs> I remember we tried getting a guitar sound and trying to explain it. Trying to explain to him the tent of doom.
1: <laughs> the tent you of know?
0: doom. I love that. It's not easy. It's like ah, we got to build this tent, man. The room's too big. We want it tight. You know, you want a big drum sound in the room, but the guitar, we want it tight. You can't put it in a room. You can't close it in. It's got to breathe, but it's going to be in a tent. Here's what we did, and, you know, showing them pictures, and it's got to be the right kind of U-Haul blanket, man, and you got to clip it together with, you know, whatever, duct tape and this certain clip, you know. Uh, We tried and tried, and the the tent of doom was never recreated very well with my clink, so... The um the uh,
2: <laughs> Mike Clink is not someone to go camping with then. Right? Not
0: at all. No. No, he you you you'd be cold and wet. Yeah. Uh but Fleming Rasmussen, now there's something else. He can build a a mean tent of doom.
2: <laughs>
1: you heard it here first kids. Don't go
2: camping with Mike Clink. Yeah, you'll be cold. What do you say, soggy and cold? Cold and wet. I think that's interesting. I think I think the biggest uh, jab thrown in that little clip is him saying, "I think we learned that maybe what was cool about Appetite for Destruction might not have had anything to do with Mike Klink." Yeah, I mean, wasn't that what he said? He said, uh, "Let's see here. Oh, shoot, <laughs> I'm trying to find it in this transcript. It's it's just very dense."
1: We talked about it
2: being similar to the
1: first Van Halen record, very live sounding, and then, you know, Justice for All ended up being very sterile. Right. And Justice being one of the most sterile sterile records of all time. Um,
2: Well, which I thought thought interesting. I've said the same thing. Well, I mean, I I, I think. I've said that exact sentence, I think. I think by sterile,
1: I would compare that or, you know, equate that to being one of the most dry records of all time it's very dry there's like
2: i've i've described it as like very like clinical it's very like incisive precise very precise cold well, it's not a warm record it's, right it's, it is it's it's sterile it is that
1: yeah it is and that's not a knock on the record that's not saying the record sucks or the, or, the, or the production sucks or anything like I still will always love that record but it is and I, I feel <laughs> love that record uh it's it's just a, a super tight dry very minimal effects record i mean there's not many parts on that record where you can even hear reverb you can occasionally you know maybe the in you know the drum parts on Justice for all the title track you know the do-do-da, do-do-da, you can kind of hear a little bit of a room on, on that you know the room they're recording in. but other than that i don't think it's uh It's not even close to appetite.
2: (laughs) Well, he also elaborates in the transcript. He says, I would say Mike Klink was not the kind of guy who would have survived a Metallica album. He's got a different aura about him. He's really gentle, really quiet. He wasn't driving. Okay. We discovered that he might not have been the reason that the Guns N' Roses album sounded the way it did. He says, maybe, maybe not, but that's our perception. He says, Klink didn't come in and just say, okay, here's what we're doing. Uh, He says, there was none of that. There was nothing to even fight. There wasn't a lot of energy, and I guess if that was our first time trying a different producer, and it didn't work out for both of us. So be it.
1: Or maybe, or maybe with the Guns record, it was more of a thing. Uh, maybe I'm just <clears throat> playing devil's advocate here. Maybe that's you know Mike Klink in, in in his role in Appetite. Maybe that's why it sounded the way it did. Because I mean, to me, Mike Klink captured what Guns sounded like live.
2: Well, and he was also, I mean, okay, I, I will take issue with James, okay, and say. I think that the job of wrangling a bunch of heroin junkies right. and making probably the greatest debut rock album of all time, all time. Yeah. Um, Mike Klink had a part in that. And For sure, yeah. To be honest with you and all of our listeners, I prefer the Use Your Illusion records over Appetite. Interesting. Okay. And okay. like big time. Okay. Big time. And, um, and that's Mike Klink also. Right. So what is it? It could it wasn't just lightning in a bottle. I mean, he recreated that with the the Use Illusion records right. or yeah, masterpieces. I mean, he was kind me. of
1: the, the the Fleming of
2: Guns and Roses. But I, mean. I think that at the same token, though, that doesn't mean he's right for Metallica. Of
1: course, yeah. No, I mean you could listen to uh, you know a producer, you know, records he did as a band and be like, wow, that sounds incredible. We got to have that guy. It sounds amazing. I love what he captured on the record. I love the aura, the the vibe, whatever. And then he gets in the studio with you, and you're like, "Ooh, this but look, does not work." And I feel like that's kind of what happened here. But with James Macallica.
2: nailed it, though. Too. He's like Lars loved Appetite because of how live it sounded, mm-hmm. and like I love the uh, comparison of Van Halen One. Right. I'd never thought of that, and when I heard that today, I thought, "Holy shit, James!" It, oh, it makes perfect sense. James really nailed that. Van, yeah. Van Halen One is so kinetic, and you know, ain't talking about love and eruption and yeah. Uh, well, it's kind of like how how you know.
1: You may have heard of him, our friend Paul Moak. Um, it's how I know a lot of times he approaches records. You know, he goes to see you know see a live a, a band live, and that's what he wants to capture. He sees the energy, he feels the energy. He sees how tight they are live, and it's like that's what I want to record.
2: But the thing is, but what James get, the, the heartbeat of what James is saying is Lars was responding to that mm-hmm. in Mike Clink, right? And yet they made they made their most non live non breathing. They made this their. He, he taught the Tin of Doom. They wanted it tight. Yeah. It, and it, in fact, it was Bob Rock seeing that tour and hearing Injustice for All where what did Bob Rock say why he wanted to work with Metallica? He said, because I saw them live in Vancouver and I didn't feel like anyone yet had captured them live. Right. I agree with that. And that's what the Black Album was. Big open room. Mm-hmm. Ba-ba-ba-ba-boom. Ba, it's just... <laughs> It's it that record breathes. It's very warm. Mm-hmm, the Black yeah. Album is the beginning, obviously, of the Bob Rock era, and would absolutely culminate in Load, Reload, and Garage Ink. Disc one of big, warm, saturated right. records that breathe and uh, that have There's this weird smoky and, swagger. Yeah, it's the opposite of Justice. B- complete opposite. You know right. what I mean? Yeah,
1: I think. Um I mean, we would have a completely different record if they would have stuck it out with Mike. With Mike, No, uh, maybe not completely different. I mean, I think they still would have taken the reins and been like, oh, "That's too much reverb" or whatever. It I might. also,
2: I also, I want to get your opinion on this too. Okay, he's sort of faulting Mike for being a little more deferential, I guess, quiet, and right. uh, I guess Mike Clinton didn't come in and be like, he wasn't like a Jimmy Eaveen character or even a Bob. Rock Right And was like Here's what we're doing Fuck you guys I don't care about your f- You know Fevered ego I'm producing the record This is what we're gonna do And I think that I think Metallica At that point Because of where they were In their maturity mm-hmm. They were still kids I Right think, I think they I think they liked Being kicked in the balls you, you know these people who They don't respect you till you kick them in the balls Yes You know what I'm talking about Yeah So I don't respect you You never kick me in the balls though. Well they, The Night's Young my friend Hey but the thing is, uh, I, I bet they thought that the guy that produced Appetite would come in and be a ball buster. And it turns right. out the guy that produced the fucking, and I mean this in, a, in affectionately, but like the dirtiest, sleaziest, realist rock record in a long fucking time. This right. wasn't any Motley Crue bullshit. Right. This was Night Train and you're crazy and yeah, rocket Queen. Mr. brownstone and this record was just well mike clink was capturing exactly who they were and, right. and
1: what they sounded like live and and he was also capturing the life they were living
2: right that All la that. that's All such that. a seedy la record man. yes it, it it's i mean if of course it starts with welcome to the jungle which is welcome to la yeah like, that's it, what it appetite is, is
1: it is the number one i would say it's the number one like la record yeah ever. totally totally um but i think maybe maybe mike clink i could be wrong here but um, it'd be fun to try to get mike clink on the show and talk about this yeah, but no i feel like he probably went in thinking i want to capture them maybe he went to a show i have no idea on the you know on the puppets tour who who knows maybe he went into this record thinking like i'm going to capture that the way i do with guns and roses i want to capture their lifestyle and the, and the live show and the energy and the space and the in the the, the ambience of their sound in the But an they arena. wanted the tight 10 of Doom. They wanted the opposite. So put those two together and then it's just heads butting, you know? And I don't know if Mike Klink knew what to do at that point. It's
2: fascinating, right? The Very Mike much Klinks. So. I would like yeah. to talk to Mike about it.
1: Mike. Uh, Paul? Paul, Mike.
2: Get Mike on the phone, Paul. Because, you know, Paul, you know, let's talk about Paul for a second. You've made a record with Paul. We've made records yeah. with Paul. Paul's such a unique cat because. He's a very sensitive person, mm-hmm. and he's very emotionally intuitive. I would, I would posit. Yes, but I do think he also, he does exert will. He exerts a will, mm-hmm. and he'll fight you on shit. Sure, of course. Yeah, he'll compromise, but also part of what you were looking for, and what James may have been looking for in a producer, is someone to fight you and fucking have a vision and. Help you achieve your vision and help you see your blind spots and right, yeah. help you g- overcome whatever kind of obstacles, insecurities, and make decisions about what songs need to get cut and what solos work and don't work. And if yep. you got a, just a nice guy, nice guys yeah. aren't really fit to be producers.
1: Yeah, I mean, nice guys finish last, man. Oh. In the words of Billy Joe Armstrong, did he write that? Is, yeah, they have a song called Nice Guys Finish Last. That's a great, great record. Well, Off we can Nimrod. move on from the Mike Klink thing. There's a little bit more here on in this interview day.
2: Another Bay Area thrash band. <laughs> so Dan asked James, do you have any favorite songs from Justice? That's a, that's a question I would ask James. Sure. Of he course. says, He says, I guess Dire's Eve to me, that's different than any of the other faster songs we've done. He says, Damage Inc. He says, you got a fast song at the beginning, a fast song at the end, your fight fires, your damages, your blackens. It had a different arrangement, a different feel to it talking about Dire's Eve right he said really fast and then the chorus is kind of and then he trails off he says it got more melody than any of the other faster songs do you think that's true I mean i I mean the melodies are great in that song it's yeah I think so too he says it's definitely a difficult song to play it which is. is nice for him to admit that Oh, I, mean, I
1: can attest to it, right? I mean, literally the other day I was listening to Justice and I grabbed my guitar and I was like, "Fuck, even that, that's not an easy song." He
2: says this, which I really liked because I've always felt this way, but he he said it, the man himself said okay. it. Okay, he said, "I really like Harvester of Sorrow. It's a great song. It was our bells of that record. It was agreed. The thick grinding riff and bouncy drum. That's totally the bells of Justice. Oh,
1: absolutely, it is. Yeah, isn't that cool? Yeah, I like when I, I mean because you know you and I doing this podcast will com- make those comparisons." You know, or when we say stuff like, you know, when we do, um, you know, Explore the Big Four, Countdown to Extinction, it's like, oh, that's kind of the Black Album of Megadeth. I like saying those things, even though, you know, they're not trying to be the Black Album or whatever, or Harvester of Sorrow isn't trying to be Bells, but that's what it became. It is kind of the the, For Whom the Bell Tolls of justice. I love those comparisons.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, like, it's, it's human beings like to orient and situate things in familiar ways. Right. Spit Out the Bone is the Dire's Eve of Hardwired. Totally. You know? Totally, it is.
1: It's not like comparing, making you know, one's better than the other. They're just, it's just what it is.
2: I just like that he, you know, I think James Hone's in on "Dyers Eve." The first thing he says when you said, "What's your favorite song on Justice?" He says "Dyers Eve." I think that's because that's a very personal song. Absolutely,
1: hundred percent. And, 100% agree.
2: and, and I, you know, I've talked about this fucking endlessly, but and in fact, me and Tom Quee had a quite the sparring match on "Thorn Within." Thank you for the sparring match. We went head to head on Thorn within because I think that when James opens up, that's my you gotta listen to that one. <laughs> yeah, it's it's good.
1: Did he? Uh, did he at least insert like some like a ring bell, like ding ding ding? And in this corner, Clint Wells. He didn't.
2: He didn't do the Guns N' Roses get in the ring that's silliness. Get in the ring. Wow. Well, in get in the ring, he and in this corner,
1: Rip Magazine, Bob Guccione Jr. at Spin. Fuck you.
2: <laughs> oh, dude, I could do that whole rip. That's a man. freaking diss track right there. How does it start? If you can just get me started, I can do that whole Get In The Ring riff. What, you pissed off because your dad gets more pussy pussy than you? You? Fuck you. you. Suck my fucking dick. You be ripping off the fucking kids while they're spending their hard-earned money, reading about the bands they want to know about, printing lies, starting controversy. You want to antagonize me? Antagonize (laughs) me, Me, motherfucker. motherfucker. Get in the ring, motherfucker, and I'll kick your bitchy little ass, punk. I love he's
1: talking about like ripping off kids when, <laughs> Axel's probably canceled more shows than ever, yeah, anybody totally. in the
2: world, <laughs> and they're selling a seventy-five thousand dollar T-shirt in Brazil. But when that record came out, God, it was that 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 song was so exciting. Usual Illusion One and Two came out on the same day, and they were mm-hmm. number one and two on the Billboard. I know it's amazing. I mean, I'm, that's wh- that honestly, that's where Load and Reload came from. Load and Reload, yes, the 100%, idea of those yeah. two sister records, same sessions double record, but spaced a year apart because they were only spaced a year apart because of touring obligations. Right. That came from them touring with guns and seeing guns and Lars was fucking obsessed with Guns and Roses. He's like, we have to do that. Well, he said they did it and, and they had two records that went to number one and number two. Why yeah. can't we? Yeah. All and right. I'm sure they had two records that went to number one because of those. So moving on to some of the last clips. So uh, James has asked about Kirk's role. Uh, he says, um, two things that we haven't touched on. Kirk's role in the record He says, it seems like Kirk's always been great at reading what's needed from him in a situation, and that perhaps at the time that you were putting Justice together, writing it, recording it, he knew what his role was, which was to basically let you guys get on with it. He said, is that how it panned out? And before we play this clip, James says, he says, yeah, I'd say that's kind of how that happened. He says, Kirk's been the kind of guy who really would read the room and make sense. That's kind of how I guess he is. Very good at seeing the room, seeing what's needed. He says he was really a referee between Lars and me for most of our career. He says, and now that that's changed a little bit, he's able to take the stripes off and be a part of things more. He says, but I, I think he did realize at that point, all right, these guys know what they're doing. I'm going to show up and I'm going to rip. I'm the ripper. <laughs> and then they start talking about the one solo and we're going to listen to a clip right now from that. All right.
0: If I hear the song, I'll know that that's the solo. But I remember we were mixing and there was some... Some solo, he said, I don't like it. I have to change that. And we had never heard it from Kirk's. like, whoa, what? It's like, sounds fine. No, no, I have to change it. And so he flew in from somewhere, did a little thing. Probably California. And, uh, Probably San Francisco. Took 10 minutes, and he flew back, and he was done. And he was happy. Kirk was happy. It's like, okay. But I remember not being very nice about it. Like, are you kidding me? What the fuck? It's even like I don't like that word. I'm gonna go in and re- redo it, you know. But there was a part of the solo where it won't, you know, it goes, na 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 And I kept thinking, uh, I would I would think, cause it costs ten thousand dollars to do it, and I kept 10,000 bucks, 10,000 bucks. You know, I would sing that
1: to him every once in a
0: while. <laughs> we were dicks.
2: Yeah. $10,000 to overdub one little part of a solo? Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of how financially that makes sense. So, well, first of all, the, the flight to come in. The, probably the flights were put on the record budget. Sure, I mean... And then the, to book the time.
1: I mean, Kirk was either back home in San Francisco because his record are in L.A. Was he going to Hawaii at this point? I don't know, but still. I mean, $10,000? But wasn't Justice recorded at one-on-one studios? Yeah. yeah.
2: So that's in, in L.A.? L- that's you know, in Burbank. In L.A.,
1: in Burbank, yeah. So if you're home in San Francisco, that's a 40-minute 40 flight, 45 minutes. Right. I've done... How did it cost i have done 000? Long Beach <laughs> to Oakland dozens of times. And it's not that long of a flight, unless you're if you're maybe you're uh, maybe chartered a plane. Well, I mean, I, whatever the reason, it seems kind of okay. crazy. It was ten grand, but
2: well, I'll say this: I'm glad he did it. I'm glad he fought for it because sure, we actually have a clip of the original solo that got. I think the the second clean solo. Ten thousand dollars. Now the world is gone. Right. Here's the original.
1: Uh, it's 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 pretty close. There's only really like a couple measures that are different.
2: I think this original one sounds like shit.
1: Let's hear it. I think you're right, but I'm saying what the final one was. It became. There's only a little part here that's different. Yeah,
2: let's listen. Eh,
1: okay. Okay, it was that one little part, but I mean, it, to me, that's a make or break situation.
2: Oh well, also his touch and the phrasing and the pocket was right. really I mean, shitty. Just on that. that, you know, w- when James jokes about the 000, ten thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars
1: I mean, that's that's what we know and love, and and it's catchy. It's you know, it's something we listen to for most of our lives, and you know, it's it's one of the things you laid on a record at the time. You, maybe you don't think like. No, that's good enough, or it's great, or it sucks. But what he came back and overdubbed was that one little part. Yeah, and to me, it changed the whole thing. Yeah, well, it's way better. Yeah, so of it was worth it. Absolutely, it's worth ten, good on
2: you, $10, Kirk. $10 thousand dollars. Ten
1: thousand bucks. Ten thousand bucks. Thousand
2: bucks. Uh, so this is how the whole interview ends, and this is such this is the nature of that where they're like doing these so what table or like deep interviews right. backstage at gigs. So. I guess James didn't know exactly what solo that was. And Dan, who's this archivist guy, yeah, he, he says it was actually the second clean solo in one. And James says, oh, okay, there you go. And he says, uh, he, says he has a rough mix of the original. And James says, huh, so the original's out there somewhere. <laughs> and then this is how it ends. Yes. This is Stefan. He says, James looks intrigued. And for a moment, the reality hits everyone that Dan has heard more of the collected justice mixes and edits and roughs and bits and pieces than James Hetfield himself. And just as we were about to get into another good 30 minutes of conversation, launching from said realization, James is plucked from our grasp and ferried to the CID meet and greet. Hit Saved by the Bell? I think that's a fair comment.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's crazy is that solo or that that alternate take Mm -hmm. is on the Justice Box set. Yeah. So at this point, do we know exactly when this interview was conducted? This
2: interview was conducted around around uh, this is before the box set came out. Okay, this so is around January. Okay, so
1: I'm not expecting James to listen to every minute of content of the I doubt they box did, set. Yeah, Lars probably did. Probably yes, but James may have gotten through like a a good amount, or, or maybe listened to like the first minute of every track. Like, okay, that's
2: cool, whatever, I approve. But maybe even maybe he didn't even do that. Maybe
1: not. But it's funny that he's like. Oh, does that exist?
2: Yeah, it's coming out in your box set. it's It's always interesting to because we put these records on such a pedestal. Mm-hmm. They are so important to us, and for many of us, these records saved our lives. yes, and it is a bitter pill a little bit to see that the people who made it don't quite see it that way. To them, it's just another you know jumping point of their career and their lives right. so that's 88 that's when we made justice i remember um on a much smaller scale this band i love called the damn wells they never nothing really ever happened they they're was from, just, are they from here they're brooklyn no, brooklyn, brooklyn okay. based that's right i, great, I know the name man. just a great rock band they were playing work play theater in birmingham where i'm from played there yeah and uh i was just a kid just a fan and i you know i went to, i bought the ticket Went to the, out to the uh, merch booth to say hi, and they had a new record out called Bastards of the Beat. And I was talking to the guitar player Dave Churnis, who plays one of the coolest solos of all time on this one song. And uh, I told him that you know I said I'm a guitar player in town. I play in a couple of cover bands. I said, dude, you do this solo on a song called I'll Keep the Bad Things from You. But I was like, dude, that you know on I'll Keep the Bad Things from You, that solo you played is incredible. And he he sort of looked up ponderously and went. Huh, I didn't even know that song was on the record. I didn't even know it made the record.
1: Da, okay, that that's that's different. I mean, I was like, dude, you haven't even heard the. He just
2: he's just a space cadet, and just but to that's him,
1: a, that's the big difference between like Hetfield going like, oh, I didn't know that that version existed of the 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 part of Kirk's solo that, that we didn't put on the record, right, right, right. Compared to that's the solo on the record, and you didn't know it was on the. Well, record? all he
2: did was he like he just was doing sessions, and then they were touring. They made their records often in like storage units while they were on tour and sure, vans yeah. and apartments and he was just kind of like he's just an artist. He's I, like I, I don't know it, what the man I don't know what management cuz he he also wasn't like the front guy. I don't think sure. he was making a lot of like sequencing decisions and Right.
1: I don't know, it's weird but but, but to not know Oh, I thought a, it was weird. a part on your record like like you know You know the song was on the record. Right. That that's insane. That's yeah. insane. You know, if if someone, you know, if there was a, a, a you know Someone that came up to me that was a fan of one of my old bands and told me, like, oh, hey, I love, you know, let's say Reliant K. And, oh, I love that song. Uh, Sa- you would probably know S- what they were talking about. Yeah, Sahara. I love that drum part you did on Sahara on, the, on the, this record. I would be like, oh, yeah, I, I remember actually around that part. I remember actually I, I lifted that part from, like, I, I'm very detail-oriented in the parts that I write and record. Right. And I could tell you, like, oh, actually, it was heavily influenced, if not lifted, that part from this band. Mm-hmm. And made it my own, and you know whatever. Right. But um, for but for if I were to ever to say, oh yeah, totally. Wait, was that song on the record? That's weird. Yeah, I mean that. I mean that's. I, I mean, again, no judgment. But it, it's somebody that's that's maybe so deep. But I think I think
2: that, my general statement applies in that the people who make the things that mm-hmm. are so important to us, right? They're important to them in different ways. Sure, they're just on the other side of that rubicon and we're they made the thing Mm -hmm. they're going to just see it differently right you know to us the questions about the bass guitar are so the bass issue of justice is like probably the greatest mythological thing in metallica's entire history (laughs) Yeah, it's probably number one yeah and to them it's like i don't know maybe it was subliminal maybe it wasn't maybe maybe jason had to fight for the fader or maybe we just had ear fatigue But we're all like, it's just like the Hobbit, or it's like Lord of the Rings for us. Still trying to find my precious, my precious, my precious bass track.
1: Isn't it interesting that with Metallica, there's there's very few bands, I would say, if any, where details about this band, like the bass issue, like the chance of Jason performing with them again, weighs heavy on all of us. Mm -hmm. There's little things that like weigh so heavy, or the fact that how many bands out in the world have had a a band member pass away and every single show they pay tribute to them Mm -hmm. where they make their legacy live on.
2: I don't know if maybe ACDC does that with Bon Scott or Zeppelin did that with John Bonham. I don't know.
1: I mean, well, well, Zeppelin barely played any
2: show. I mean, they
1: they did that reunion show where Jason Bonham played. So that was their tribute, I guess. But, um, I've never seen AC.
2: I don't know live, if Paul. But, I don't know if Paul does a thing in his show with like a thing about John. I don't know or a thing about George. I don't know if he has a moment in his know, show but, for John and George. I but,
1: mean, but, but Metallica is even without <clears throat> even without their help, their our, the fans us mm-hmm. have basically like made sure that these little things are ongoing you and live and, on, and we don't forget about them, right? Whether it's Cliff Burton, or it's the lack of bass on Justice, or it's, will Jason ever come back? Mm-hmm. Poor Rob. He's been in the band for, what, 14, 15 years yeah, at this point? And people probably still wonder that. Yeah. Like, when Jason, that interviewer, is like, oh, we're talking about something. I can't tell you what's up,
2: or whatever. I've honestly turned the corner. I don't want Jason back. I love him. He's my guy. He's my Metallica bass player. Sure. But for him... For him to come back now just makes no sense. It's it's like it's like remixing justice with bass. Exactly. It's, like it's yeah. over. Right, right. It's just over.
1: If it if it happens where he let's let's just say hypothetically, he performs two songs with him at, at S and M two.
2: Oh, that'd be great. It'll be
1: a special treat. Yeah, that'd be awesome. But I'm not sitting there getting my hopes up about it. But it's just interesting that there's a band like this that, you know, even in these questions for so what, you know, they're talking about certain things that, like all of us, like think about all the time.
2: But to them, it's just a, it's just their lives. It is, yeah. And I would even say I'm not even not only am I not getting my hopes up about Jason rejoining Metallica, I don't think I want him to. I don't either. I, That's no disrespect I, to Jason. I want. Or, I, or anything, Rob's is Metallica's
1: bass player. Rob's the dude. He's been in the band for a long. He's the longest standing Metallica bass yeah. player. He deserves it. He's he deserves it from day one. He yeah. deserved it from his audition. I mean, he's a badass bass player. I, nothing but respect for Robin his yeah. abilities. But I don't know. I I just you know all I'm trying to say is that it, Metallica is the, is this special band that not a lot of artists out there can can share this. They, they they don't understand what it's like to have a fan base that don't forget about things and they and they I don't know. They, they, I feel like us Metallica fans read deeper into things than a lot of artists out there
2: well i would invite you one day to cordially join me on the dave matthews <laughs> band forums because i knew that was it gets happen. really really deep over there i'm sure We're, they're a fucking insane too every band's you know like big bands got that they have
1: that kind of stuff but, but Metallica's
2: I mean, definitely one of them there's a lot of mythology right
1: like you know well people still i mean people still to this day in 2019 almost 20 years later still bring up napster shit
2: well, how about it's we're crazy. all still waiting for them to play Fixer?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that too. I mean, you know
2: what I mean? Like there's still like debuts that we're still waiting for. Right. You know, that that I mean, like Fixer's one of the most beloved unplayed, ignored songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amongst the diehards, I would say the casuals aren't would not fit They probably that don't name. even own that record. Maybe or they maybe. just dislike it or they don't want them to play Didn't it and make it to whatever. The end of the record? But... but you know, there's like this huge movement on the forums to get them to play Fixer at SNM and two. Yeah to sort of write the decade long decades long you know wrong of sure. not ever playing it
1: right i'm uh just a quick side note on SM 2 i'm my hopes are I'm, I'm i'm placing my hopes in in the in the bucket that is they're going to play it safe and maybe throw in an extra song or two only because if they come out and do some of the ones from SM one And then do a bunch of ones that I haven't heard before. I'm going to be fucking stoked.
2: I think they're going to kill Minus Human and all the load reload stuff except for Fuel and Memory Remains. Yeah, agreed. And those slots are all going to be replaced with Hardwired. I think we're going to lose of Wolf and Man. Yeah. And I think we're going to get at least one St. Anger song. Probably Frantic. I
1: think we'll get Frantic or Sand Anger because that's what they've been playing. Um, I think we're going to get Hardware and stuff like he said. Mm-hmm. I still, I'm
2: still, my gut still says they're going to do at least uh, Unforgiven 3 or The Day That Never Comes. They got to do something from Death Magnetic. Uh, the Day That Never Comes is like the one I would imagine. They played Unforgiven 3. Un- I mean, Unforgiven um,
1: 3 has strings on it, on the recording. I'd love to see My Apocalypse.
2: But I just don't think there's a lot of room for it because they're going to want to do. They're going to do Moth. They're probably going to do Atlas or Halo. Halo. I mean Halo. But I think. But here's what we're going to lose for are sure. Are They
1: going to do Sanitarium and Fade to Black. Mm, I doubt it. You don't think so?
2: I think they're going to keep the classics that they did: Puppets and Sad to, and Rome and Sandman and nothing it else brings matters. Me back,
1: <clears throat> brings me back to what I mentioned when we when we did our like predictive S and M two thing. They talk, When the announcement came out, they talked about, we're going to do Michael Kamen's arrangements. Mm-hmm. We don't know what
2: songs Michael Kamen may have arranged they didn't do. We do know. We saw, we saw a set list. It had Fight Fire, Low Man's Lyric, Poor Twisted Me, um, Fade to Black. I forgot about this. Yeah. I mean, we saw a set list, and I think they tried it, and it just didn't work. I think Harvey was on there. Okay. I don't think they're going to do thing that should not be again. I think I think some of the outlier tunes will go. Right. They're yeah. going to keep puppets. They're going to keep Seth, They're going to keep yeah. Sandman. Nothing else matters. Rome. Uh, Battery. Unforgiven. One. Well, one. Unforgiven. They didn't do the first time. Exactly. I think they should do it again. No, not again. They should do it. Okay. There, there's a. There, I mean.
1: I don't know. Now we're getting SM2 territory heavily but we need to get out of here we need to get out of
2: here all right so listen metal podcast show at gmo.com what do you guys think about james interview i thought i thought i learned new things about justice that i didn't know uh i love the deep dives Mm -hmm. i love that stefan shiraz guy however you say his damn name he
1: i mean god bless him he
2: he really digs deep i love that about him we need to get him on the show any of you out there who know that guy or know mike clink or know james Hetfield, or any anybody metallica past
1: or present or future
2: Um, The next few weeks are going to be interesting because we are going on vacation. I'm going to Japan. You leave when? I leave this This Friday.
1: Congratulations, dude. I'm I'm so happy for you to go to Japan. It's such a fascinating country.
2: We are going to have some radio episodes. We're going to have content every Monday. There'll be content, yeah. And then starting in September, we're going to really hunker down because my touring season slows down. We're going to get to a lot of these interviews and a lot of these guests that we have lined up. Uh, In the meantime, go leave the review. Go check out the Patreon. We're going to be giving out shit. we got a bunch of fun shit to give away. Things just need to settle down on the home front. That's right. And I guess without any further ado, let's get the fuck out of here. Peace. Let's
1: do it. Adios.
2: <laughs> if you were our advisor, what would you say? And then I would say, delete that.